Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am swell. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, the Golden Globes happened last night. Uh, no one cares. Last night being... Uh, Sunday, we're taping this on Monday, as always, for Tuesday, but you, know, you, you catch my drift. I'm being dead serious. When even I don't care about something like this, no one cares. The only reason I even realized it was occurring uh, is because people were dunking on the official Twitter account for the Globes, making a gaffe by suggesting West Side Story was a delightful comic romp. <laughs> um, I have no idea who won Best Actor or Best Actress or Best Dramatic Feature. Literally, the only award I know is that West Side Story won Best Comedy or Musical. And I refuse to look it up just so I can keep doing this bit. Um, the problem with the Golden Globes is that it really only had cachet at all because it was a big party. They got televised and to which celebrities deigned to show up. Um, never forget that the awards at the Golden Globes are chosen by a handful of secretive journalists from around the world, a meaning that they have about as much validity as the Washington Area Film Critics Association Awards, of which I am a member in good standing. With celebrities boycotting the show because of scandal within the organization, there were accusations of bribery, uh, what amounted to kind of money laundering in a way, um, and then racism within its membership. Uh, there were there's no show this year. No show. No no celebs wanted to come, meaning no show, meaning nobody really cares. Uh, this is, as uh, my friend and friend of the show, Richard Rutchfield, notes in his newsletter today, a disaster for the little people, the dressmakers, the limo drivers, the caterers, the bar owners hosting the after parties, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it also enforce, it reinforces a visual idea with Hollywood right now, which is that nobody wants to go out. I mean, you could look at the cancellation of the premiere, the red carpet shindig for Scream, right? Or look at the cancellation of Sundance's in-person events for its film festival just two weeks before it was scheduled to start out of fear of Omicron, the variant of COVID that is generally about as bad as a cold or a mild flu in healthy people under the age of 60 who are vaxxed and boosted, but never mind. The New York Times noted that Hollywood is worried about losing its awards season again, and it well should be, not just because the awards shows themselves are going to be muted affairs, uh, but because people simply aren't showing up for the award season movies, uh, or really any movies of any sort, uh, with one big exception, Spider-Man, No Way Home. Indeed, I was doing a little bit of box office sleuthing uh, this morning. And uh, in, my, in my sleuthing, in my searching, I, I learned that in No Way Home's fourth weekend of release, this was its fourth weekend of release, it's been out for a month now, it had a higher per screen average in this, its fourth weekend, than any film since the first weekend of Ghostbusters Afterlife. Something like 13 films have come out. They've received wide release. And in its fourth weekend, No Way Home has done better than all of them. Crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, meanwhile, the streamers continue to grow. HBO surpassed expectations, hitting 73.8 million subscribers worldwide. And it's a little difficult to break down exactly how much revenue this actually generates for Warner Media, But the average revenue per domestic user for HBO is about $11.82. If we figure half the subs come from the U.S., that's about $436 million every month just from domestic subs. Let's say the worldwide total is half of that. Let's give them around $650 million every month total uh, from both domestic and foreign, meaning annual revenues of about $7.8 billion per year. Let's call it $8 billion per year just for rounding purposes. Man, that is some journalist math. That's journalist math right there. But as a point of reference, I mean, look, eight billion is ballpark. It's very ballpark. You, I, it could be seven, it could be nine. I don't. 
don't know. But it's a point of reference here. And the point of reference here is that $8 billion uh, is more than two thirds of what the entire yearly box office for all studios in 2019 was. But that was $11.3 billion. The reason everybody's pivoting to streaming is because there's so much money to be made there. There's so much money to be made there. Now, Closing one window, uh, the theatrical window, might still be a bad move in the grand scheme of things, but with all of this money that's coming in right now, it's hard to say. Peter, I'm a little worried about the state of movie going in general. Should I be? Maybe. I think you should be worried about the state of the theatrical experience, because if there is a lesson from the last two years, it's that you can't sell the theatrical experience to anyone except for young men who want to see superhero films. Now, yeah, Spider-Man's a four-quadrant movie, and it does seem to be doing business outside of the under-25 male audience. But still, I'm looking at the top five films for 2021, and four of them star Marvel characters— One is uh, Spider-Man, one is uh, Venom, that's technically owned by Sony, it's complicated, but they're Marvel characters, right? Uh, It's uh, it's Spider-Man, Venom. It has the Marvel logo. Shang-Chi. At the beginning of the film. And Black Widow, right? That's that's what did business this year. And to a first approximation, nothing else, okay, Fast 9. But like very close to nothing else did theatrical business. And so I think that this is a bad sign for the future of theatrical exhibition, I'm not sure it's a bad sign for movies. Because as you say, Sonny, there is still a ton of money going to companies that want to produce filmed content, scripted filmed material. And HBO Max, for example, targets college-educated adults as like a big part of their market, right? And so they are going to want to fund projects that, uh, that I think adults will want to see, right, it's, and, and will be sophisticated and smart and interesting. It's just that those types of movies are not going to be designed as theatrical experiences first and foremost. And so if what you want is the, the box office and studio system of, I don't know, 1999, which was an incredible year for movies, um, if, if you want that world to come back, I, I think maybe it's not going to. On the other hand, I don't think we are moving into a world where it's just the case that nothing gets made except for superhero films. It may be that nothing gets shown in theaters with a handful of kind of arty exceptions except for superhero films. I understand this, but one thing to keep in mind is that the streamers in general tend to pride TV shows, serial dramas over movies, just because you can get more bang for your buck if the whole point is capturing eyeballs for extended periods of time. Why make one $200 million two-hour movie when you can make a $50 million ten-hour TV show? Or even, you know, $50 million movie versus $50 million TV show. But I take your point. I take your point. Alyssa, what, what do you make of this kind of current state of things? I feel like the last two years have taught me anything. It's that I I don't know how to make predictions in this environment. Um, I, you know, I have long said, for example, that I think cord cutting is a bad bargain. And I think that is proving to be true. But I am mentally still having a hard time getting my head around the economics of what's happening with the shift to streaming because I am not good at any math journalist or otherwise. And it's true that, you know, the, the numbers that you're rattling off, Sonny, like that's a big chunk of change for Warner Brothers. But I don't know what that means in terms of lost syndication deals and, um, you know, home video purchases, like the collapse of the entire rental market. 
I, I, I don't know how you balance, you know, collapsing all of your revenue streams into one revenue stream that you control. I, I, I don't know if that math works out once you take a lot of the theatrical box office sort of out of play for these companies. So it's it's hard for me to get my mind around the math. And you know, this virus has proven to be really unpredictable, right? There was a big turnout for West Side Story in my neighborhood theater on the day that I saw it and you know, during a daytime screening. But I don't know how much bigger that might have been had Omicron not started spiking, right? I mean, I went to see Spider-Man No Way Home with a regular civilian audience sort of at the time, at the beginning of the moment when it seemed like Omicron was going to be bad. And that was a jam-packed full audience. So I don't know to what extent the audience for West Side Story will return when it really feels safe. On the other hand, I have no idea when it really feels safe, and I'm putting that in air quotes, is going to be for anybody in the quadrants that have turned away from movie going. So I don't know when the return to safety is happening or what it looks like. I don't know what audiences will come back and what they'll have to come back to. And I don't know how the pivot to streaming economics shakes out in the long term if you're giving up a lot of other revenue streams. I I, I just cannot get my head around it. Um, and I honestly feel kind of baffled. So here's something that I, I just want to throw out to you guys. For the last 20 years, making art films at least, right? Like as we sort of, or, or art films that are sort of for the masses, right? That aren't like super obscure student films, sort but are- the Miramax model. Right, has- Oscar bait. Yeah. That sort of thing. Well, That's Oscar bait is a little bit different because you can think of stuff like Cold Mountain or whatever, which opened pretty wide. I mean, it's certainly yeah. like 700 to 1,000 screens. But but we've always had this, this model of movie that opens on like seven screens and then maybe opens on 30. And then if, if it does well, ends up Platforming. getting it, getting to a few hundred screens, although it doesn't always get there. And there has been a market for like those movies have have we keep they keep being made even though some of them turn out to not be profitable. Um, it's always a risk. There's you know they are made on shoestring budgets, hope and a dream, right? Like it's you don't know if those things are going to earn out. But people see cachet, right? See they 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 sort of they see that like. This is a value. This is a potentially valuable status giving thing to put into the world. People believe in their projects and they keep making them. And I went to see here in Washington, D.C., a, a sold out or effectively sold out screening of Licorice Pizza several weeks into the run um, uh, on Saturday night uh, at the Alamo Draft House here. And that's the kind of movie, it's a little more expensive than some of these things, but that's the kind of movie that has always played to a relatively small group audience of mostly urban cinephiles uh, who are college-educated adults, right? Like, that's the sort of the rough target. I don't mean that everybody who sees that kind of movie fits that profile at all. But it's always like, you you know, it's it's always been the case that I've gone to see to the E Street Theater at, here in Washington, D.C. and seen movies that are playing on less than 30 screens in the country. And so part of me wonders if, if this is going to change all that much, since many of these movies were never mass commercial products anyway. And if they had a life, it was that they did really well in a couple of theaters. And then in many cases, they found a sort of secondary uh, success on on video, on streaming, on demand, on, on whatever. And that's that model still potentially exists because I don't think all of the big city art house theaters are going to close or only show Spider-Man sequels. 
Yeah, and they may have to go to different models. I mean, you know, we live, Peter and I live within driving distance of, you know, the AFI in Silver Spring, the Avalon. Um, my local theater in D.C. is a nonprofit in a neighborhood that, you know, doesn't have um, – I would, you know, it's hard for me to say that my neighborhood doesn't have like a large cinephile population, but it has people who like going to the movies and have enough money to, you know, stick their names on a plaque on a back of a chair. And, you know, so maybe we'll end up with more nonprofit movie theaters in some of these locations. Maybe, you know, chains like the Alamo and like Landmark will um, come to sort of dominate that market. I think it's, I mean, I think it's possible that some of this stuff survives. I just, I don't. I feel foolish putting any particular predictions out there, especially at a time when it seems to me like executives in the business are, you know, kind of chasing their stock prices without a really long-term vision for what the overall business model is, given that they are currently planting dynamite under the old one. And that, you know, world events are planting dynamite under their old model, too. Yeah, I mean, I also think people are underrating the pay rental streaming video uh, market, right? Um, not we talk a lot about the streamers and you know their big spend on content, but I, no. you know, I, just to give you an example, um, I missed Bergman Island when it was briefly in theaters here in Washington D.C. and was able to just pay it was like seven bucks or something just to see it very easily uh, on I think through Amazon or or Apple no. or something like that. One of those services, right? And there's now a bunch of them. You don't, they don't require you know sort of an upfront. Uh, payment uh, yeah. for most of them, you just pay a couple of bucks, and and that that is a thing that people have done for decades. Since I mean, like since the dawn of the video rental market, people have gone to pay three or four or five dollars to just have a movie that they can watch tonight at home, and the that experience is now so much better in like basically every way, right? You can watch it in 4K on your big home theater. And also you can get a movie that was in a theater three or four weeks ago much easier than you could, you know, when I was in high school when there was a nine-month window between theatrical release and when things would hit Blockbuster. But that's what I mean about part of the model blowing up, right? I mean, if you are Warner Brothers and are sending your content exclusively to HBO Max to juice that, you know, there's a difference between getting $12.99 a month for the entire library and getting whatever your cut of five bucks is for the rental for a single movie, right? I mean, I... Yeah. Well, I mean, this is... So this is uh, a thing I've talked about with folks in the business, guys like uh, James Emanuel Shapiro over on uh, Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. But, like, when you start collapsing that window, all of the windows get smaller and the, the waterfall of revenue gets much, much lower. I mean, uh, take, a, take a movie like The Batman, right, yeah. that's coming out in 2022. Uh, it's 2022 already, man. We're that'll, already there. Why, why it happened. That, that, that'll, be, that'll be in theaters for 45 days, and then it's going to go straight to HBO Max. You're, you're, cutting, out, you're cutting out a uh, a portion of the tail of the theatrical just by having it on HBO Max so quickly, but you're cutting out entirely that PVOD market. I mean, not entirely. There will be some people who don't have HBO Max and who will probably rent it on. You're cutting uh, out you know, cable syndication. I mean, Cable syndication you're cutting out. Uh, lots of DVD and Blu-ray sales. I mean, that that market is cratering anyway, but it's cratering because of the rise of streaming. I mean, like yes, but you're cutting it out in favor of a subscription model that's what thirteen or sixteen dollars a month. And yeah. like, the, what was the rental price for the Batman on streaming video VOD beforehand? It was fifteen or twenty bucks. But before this, before this, people would pay their you know fifteen dollars to buy but my, uh, right. But this the is Batman my point: is that if you and, can and they would still subscribe to things. I mean, I like. They're, they didn't subscribe to movie services because 
there were no movie services to subscribe to. And so the bet here is that instead of getting people to sporadically buy DVDs, and yes, Sonny, I know you bought a lot of DVDs and so did I, but most people didn't buy that no, many. No, no, no. But that's, that, see, that's not true. That is absolutely not true. Before the rise yes, of Yes, it was Netflix a huge market. I get that. The, the, the home DVD, uh, home video sales market was multiple times bigger than the domestic box office. Like that is where Hollywood was making their money. If, if, Warner Brothers can effectively get everyone to buy the equivalent of one DVD a month. And by signing up for a, a service that bills you automatically right. sure. to guarantee that you are doing that, then that is like, or maybe not everyone, obviously, but get many, many movie watching households to do so. Get 60 or you know 73 million that they have now, 73.8 well, million, that's, right? That's- Seventy three point eight million. That that was the whole point of the journalist math earlier. Is right. that you are you're looking at you're looking at an enormous amount of money. The problem is I don't I don't know that that amount of money, as Alyssa says, it's kind of a black box. We don't know if that amount of money will make up for domestic theatrical revenue, foreign theatrical revenue, uh, home video sales, cable syndication, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just they're they're they, you they are they are creating fewer ways to give Warner Brothers money. And and they're trading that for locking people in, you know, but the churn, we haven't even talked about the yeah. churn. Who knows what's going to happen with HBO Max once people realize in 2022, the year that we're in right now. Oh, wait, I'm not getting Dune. Yep. Uh, I'm not getting the Matrix Resurrections. I'm not getting King Richard. I'm not getting, you know, Cry Macho. I like and the, Yeah. I mean, the it, place to look here is Netflix, which, you know, I think a lot of analysts think that Netflix has basically reached saturation in the United States you know, 10 million new households a year who can sign up for it. They have lost a lot of the, you know, syndicated libraries that they use to hook people in the first place. And, you know, they're spending a lot of money on new content, not a lot of which has proven to be terribly sticky. And so, you know, I and they never really had a big investment in these other revenue streams in the first place. So they're going to be a very pure example of, kind of what the ceiling is on this kind of business. Um, So I will be curious to watch Netflix, partially so I can shape my thinking about what's happening in the rest of the industry. All right. Uh, So what do we think? I mean, we got got sidetracked by streaming, but not really sidetracked because that's the future here. I mean, what do we think? It's the present, Sonny. It's the present. Is in-person movie going a relic of the past, Peter? I think it might be for many people pretty soon. Alyssa? Yeah, same. And it's depressing. Sucks, but yes, we're all we're all going to be watching all of our content at home, just getting it beamed straight into our eyes by our OLED TVs with our surround sound Atmos systems, just you know, cocooned in the noise and the, the vision. Um, if you enjoy this show, we're going to beam it straight into your ears soon. Uh, who does not? It's great. Uh, please head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we will pay tribute to some of the big names we've lost in the first like handful of days of this year. Man, 2022 is a Serial killer already. Uh, And now on to the main event, Licorice Pizza. The latest from Paul Thomas Anderson uh, is a little hard to describe if we're just talking pure plot mechanics here. Um, The broadest way to describe it is that it's a coming-of-age story of sorts in which the 15-year-old Gary, who's played by Cooper Hoffman, uh, pursues his 25-year-old crush, Alana, played by Alana Haim, uh, against the backdrop of early 1970s Southern California. Gary's a schemer and a dreamer. He's a child actor turned PR person turned waterbed salesman turned pinball palace magnate. Uh, the events of Licorice Pizza are, you know, kind of only loosely stitched together in the way that the events of life 
are only loosely stitched together. Uh, but the whole thing is driven by the relationship between Gary and Alana, the awkwardness she feels of being pursued by a teenager, um, the way he hurts her and the way she hurts him back as they're sorting out what they actually mean to each other. Uh, her realization that she has fallen into his orbit of weirdos and wants something more meaningful like local politics to pull her out of it. Um, I'm sure we can talk uh, a little bit more about the age gap that I mentioned above. Uh, the almost kind of, I mean, I, whatever. It's it's an almost chaste relationship, I think is one way we could describe it. Um, but it has been a subject of discussion amongst critics uh, who have, you know, thought that it was terribly inappropriate. We didn't get a lot of this discussion during the Call Me By Your Name saga, uh, but we'll, we can talk about that as well. Um, one thing that this film really does do, though, is cements Anderson's status, at least in my mind, as uh, a great director of romantic comedies. Uh, no, Punch Drunk Love and Phantom Thread and Licorice Pizza are not rom-coms in the J-Lo slash equivalent uh, meets Matthew McConaughey slash equivalent sense. Um, they fall in love and over the course of 100 minutes realize that they're two wacky kids who are just made for each other in this crazy world. Um, and they're not raunch-coms in the Owen Wilson, Vince Vaughn style, uh, but they are romantic and they are very funny in their own subdued ways. Uh, this is ultimately a hangout movie, right? It's the valley set flip side of the Hollywood set Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's It's got a great cast with fine turns from Bradley Cooper, Sean Penn, Tom Waits, and Benny Safdie, among others. Um, there's also a blink and you'll miss it John C. Riley appearance. You'll hear it really more than you see it. Um, and it's, it's laid back without being lackadaisical, which is no easy feat. I kind of loved it. Uh, Alyssa, did you? I did too, mostly because I think Alana Haim is amazing in this, um, especially for you know someone who's, this is her first movie role. She just has a tremendously expressive face. And if you listen to the podcast, I know I go on and on about the sort of plasticity of people's faces. But, you know, hers is something really special, I think. And it means that, you know, just the, the her changing expression can do an enormous amount to fill in what's happening in a scene without Anderson needing to have written dialogue to express it. I mean, the moment after she and Gary have delivered a waterbed to John Peters and then flooded his house and run out of gas in their truck in the course of getting away from this mess that they've created. You know, there's this moment where she is sitting by the side of a road um, while Gary and his friends, you know, run off with gas cans to get gas. And you just see the sort of disgust and exhaustion in her face as she realizes, yeah, I'm really hanging out with a bunch of teenagers who are, you know, pretending that their gas cans are phalluses. And I just flooded John Peter's house. And what am I doing with myself? And I mean, there isn't a, you know, there isn't a line of dialogue that where she expresses that or, you know, sums it up. It just happens on her face and she can do that. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me that this has become controversial for the age gap because it strikes me that the age gap is what the movie is about, right? I mean, yeah. Gary is chasing this you know, sort of slick, phonied up version of adulthood with, you know, I would say like 90% conviction. He's still a kid in some ways. And Alana is just lost, which is why she's hanging out with Gary and his friends, right? I mean, the movie doesn't pretend that this is a sort of normal or admirable thing for her to be doing. Um, it's understandable why Gary is nuts for her. But it's also clear that the fact that she is – has gotten to this place is – that it's not healthy. It's not appropriate. And it's evidence of – 
you know, just her not really being together or entirely well. Um, and I, I was I, one of the things I actually wanted to ask you guys. Do you think the ending of the movie really happens? Uh, Peter, why don't, why don't you handle that? I, I, I have thoughts on this. Well, I hadn't thought of it as being a fantasy. But now that you put it that way, I think that's a plausible enough reading. I suppose I suppose I think that if that I would not read the movie, I didn't read the movie that way when I was watching it. And I obviously having only seen it once, you know, I reserve the right to change my mind. But I I think it happens because I think this movie is ultimately a romantic film about two two people who are in love in a strange kind of love coming together. And I think just looking back at P.T. Anderson's previous films, what you what you see so often is a strange kind of love working out more or less because all the kinds of love that are real are strange. And yeah. and, and right, and the strangeness is what allows it to work in his uh, in his vision of love, which I want to talk about in a little bit, but I want to hear what Sonny thinks about the ending to this movie. I, I, it's funny that you asked this, Alyssa, because I found myself wondering the same thing at the end for a couple of reasons. The first of which is that it, it's shot in a slightly different style, but it, there's also, in, she, we hear her thinking something, which is not something that we hear anybody else do in the rest of the movie. We hear internal monologue. We hear her say, I love you or something. I love you, to Gary. That effect. Yeah. yeah, I love you, Gary, right? At the end. And I, I thought to myself, oh, that's interesting and different. I wonder... I wonder if and because also the, the the second the second reason I thought this was because it takes place right after she sees and this is where I think things get a little more questionable just from a like moral ickiness perspective. But the, the she she sees the uh, the closeted gay uh, councilman, you know, is is destroying the life of this person, you know, he loves and wants to be with. And uh, their their kind of forbidden love is, you know, is, is the way that this is 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 it has to be hidden is bad. And I think she she sees that and thinks, oh, why can't I why shouldn't I have the same sort of thing except with a 15 year old it's a little bit different i don't know but the but but that 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 like tra- that transfers right into a montage of her and him kind of chasing together which could very easily have all taken place in her mind except i don't think and again as i was thinking about this a little more i just don't i don't think the language of the film really supports this read because we see things from gary's perspective too yeah we see it from gary's perspective as well as he's leaving the pinball palace and running towards running towards her. So I, I, I think it I think it happens, but I'm I'm glad that you asked that because I found myself thinking the same thing and thought, ah, eh, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just like overreading this. No, I thought it I I think it's a really interesting ending, precisely because it opens up that question and it could be interpreted any number of ways, right? It could be something that really happens after Alana and it could represent either Peter, as you said, you know, Alana sort of deciding to embrace love. It could also be an expression of her sort of disgust at the adult world, right? I mean, she thinks that she is working for this person who is idealistic and represents kind of a vision of adulthood that is engaged but pure. And then she sees just how ugly it is, right? I mean, she's very excited about getting invited to go to the restaurant and have a drink with him. She sort of almost has this moment where she hooks up with her fellow campaign worker. You know, it she goes off to meet Walks and his boyfriend 
kind of thinking that her adult life is a, has arrived and then gets pulled into this ugly act of manipulation. And she so her, you know, running to Gary could be seen as her either, you know, purely loving him or rejecting that kind of adult ugliness and compromise. But if it's a fantasy, it could be interesting. You could interpret it depending on whose fantasy it is, right? I mean, it could be Gary fantasizing that the relationship is sort of finally coming to fruition um, and that he's getting what he always wanted. It could be Alana kind of fantasizing that she gets this big gesture. I mean, it's it's interestingly ambiguous, and I, I liked that about it. Um, I mean, I think to me, the part that read as fantasy was not sort of them running to each other and the very funny moment where they like collide and fall over, which I think is great. But the the sort of the moment afterwards when they're running off hand in hand and everything looks sort of dreamy and you have that I love you line. Um, so I, I just found it, I, I was interested and I'm glad, Sunny, that you sort of had that thought too. I, I think it's probably the case that what we're seeing is meant to have actually happened, but it's just different enough that it sows a very interesting ambiguity. Yeah. Uh, Peter, what did you make of this? Uh, so I loved this movie. Um, and I loved it in part because it seems like yet another and perhaps the deepest exploration uh, yet of Paul Thomas Anderson's theory of, of love and romance. And his theory is something like this. It's that love is a series of extremely specific, non-reducible, quite odd events between people who like sort of don't necessarily it's not like he manages he makes movies about people who fall in love with each other for reasons that you understand after you've seen them but you couldn't explain except by explaining every little thing that happens and and that seems so true and so real to me um and it's a sort of theory of love and relationships and a theory of romantic entanglement that you basically don't see ever on screen because movies like to tell simple formulaic stories about people who fall in love, even if it's like an, oh, an unconventional love story. It's like they fell in love because they both have like one weird interest together. And this isn't a movie about people who have one weird interest together. It's not a movie about people who just sort of come together over doing one, this one specific thing, right? It's kind of episodic and shaggy, but the episodicness and shagginess of it is the point. Love and relationships are themselves episodic and shaggy. That's how you get to know someone is by following them through their mattress, their, their, you know, their mattress sales days, as well as their like opening of a, a, a pinball arcade, you know, as well as like kind of maybe thinking, oh, at some moment, like this person is totally wrong for me. What am I doing? And then finding yourself also thinking, but maybe they're right for me because the all other relationships seem horrible. And this one somehow or another, if I just, if I just embrace the weirdness of it. It can be pure. Um, and I think you see that in Punch Drunk Love. I think you see that in Phantom Thread, and you certainly see it here. And it's it's just so natural and so human in a way that is very rare to see on screen. So um, so I'm, 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 I'm a big fan of this movie. I'm a big fan of P.T. Anderson's takes on romance in general. Um, I also, the other thing that I just wanted to point out and throw out to you guys, I don't know, Sonny, I'm I'm pretty sure you've seen most of P.T. Anderson's films. I, Alyssa, I don't actually know if you are like a, a student of his work or not, 
But there's just a bunch of interesting and somewhat unexpected callbacks here, uh, starting with the fact that this is yet another movie about a mattress salesman. Like, who, who, what Otter has made <laughs> two mattress salesman movies? Like, it's this in Punch Drunk Love, right? So you've also got um, yet another story about a, a you know a put upon child star, right? In this case, a little happier one, but like that's you you see that in two of the different subplots in Magnolia. Um, uh, Magnolia also has uh, the William H. Macy subplot about unrequited love, which is like pings off of some of the stuff in this uh, in interesting ways. And then, of course, this movie also follows Phantom Thread, which uh, is another movie about uh, people who are in the strangest possible romantic relationship, one that you might even say is sadistic or 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 bad in some ways that people might judge from the outside. And yet from the inside, sort of once you give in to the strange, the, like that movie is about giving in to the strangeness and irreducibility of romantic love. And it's also a movie that includes like this one, uh, scenes in which one of the romantic partners are like, you're being weirdly loud with your body sounds. Again, like a, just a very specific thing that he is, uh, that P.T. Anderson has put in several different films here. And it's just kind of odd to see him like have these interests pop up again and again and again. Like who who has made two different mattress salesman movies and two different movies about how love is about having to put up with the fact that the person you are interested in makes odd sounds with their body by chewing or breathing? I mean, interestingly, it also kind of reminded me of The Master, which is a movie about sort of yeah. two people who are drawn together in a relationship that's like not really appropriate or one that people outside the relationship understand. Um, and that's maybe not really good for either one of them. Uh, I mean, certainly in The Master, uh, the relationship is good for neither of them. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge I'm not a huge P.T. Anderson obsessive, but um it, it did kind of remind me of the master in some odd ways. It, it calls to mind the master a little bit. I mean, I I'm certainly I, interested in obsessive relationships that don't conform to normal social expectations. Yeah. I, uh, I, 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 I consider, I, I, I liked licorice pizza quite a bit. I do think it's minor Paul Thomas Anderson. I don't think it's, it's nearly as good as like there will be blood, which is one of the best movies of the two thousands or, or even like Punch Drunk Love, which I, I think is just a... No movies are as good as There Will Be Blood, man. Well, okay. I'm, I'm just saying it's, you know, it is if we're ranking, if we're doing a ranking, if we're doing an impromptu ranking, I, that's that's my number one. Um, uh, and and it, it, as far as the like kind of, you know, 1970s California aesthetic, I, I still probably like Boogie Nights a little more, um, though this is, this is also very good and kind of gets into a lot of that and has some great tracking shots. There's some great tracking shots in this movie, but they're much subtler than in Boogie Nights. I feel like he is, uh, he's, he's pulled back on that a little bit. I will, um, I, but no, it's, it's good. I will say I did not think the sort of more self-consciously parodic, parodic is almost not the right word for some of this, elements of the movie work terribly well. Like I didn't think the recurring thing with John Michael Higgins, the like racist Japanese restaurant owner worked at all. I didn't think the sort of New York trip stuff with the Christina Ebersol character worked particularly well. Like to me, the movie was at its best when it's sort of at its loosest. Although Bradley Cooper as John Peters is like so delightfully insane um, that he sort of I is the exception that proves the rule. At least to me. See, I, I, I think it, I think it needs all that. I think it needs all that stuff because I think it it again it is essentially a slice of life and like life is weird like that where you have both interactions with people and like repeating interactions with them that 
either you know make sense or or don't. And like I think I think that yeah. the New York I think I also I, I just want to push back slightly on the New York trip because I think that's actually a very important sequence because we have to see Alana trying to get into another relationship successfully in a way and then have it not work out uh, for whatever reason. In this case, you know, the kind of conflict between the family and the, the Jewishness of the character. It is it is a it's it's an interestingly Jewish movie, Alyssa. We also you, need to you, see oh, Valentine. Yeah, we all I, I would just say that the New York sequence, we also need to see Valentine being a child star in a way that sells that he is not just faking it because he seems like he might be completely conning us uh, until we see that sequence. Yeah. Um, I Yeah, I guess it's more the sort of the sort of very mannered nature of both of those set of both of those characters was what didn't quite land for me. They just felt dropped in from a very different movie um, in a way that like the Sean Penn character didn't for me. Um, I mean, I actually really, you know, that the sort of taking the kind of. I'm trying to find the right words to describe there, but the sort of kind of free-flowing sort of sexual energy that Penn was putting off in those scenes and the ways that the way that that sequence sort of communicates that his charisma doesn't really need an object or rather that any object will do, uh, I thought was just really sort of loose and nice. Um, I really enjoyed that. I thought that worked well, but I didn't think all of the slices of the sort of random characters landed with the same effect or grace. Thumbs up for sure. Uh, Alyssa. Definite thumbs up. I will also give it a thumbs up. Three thumbs up. So that is it for this week's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode on some some sad losses that we have incurred so far this year. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. Strong review recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. Um, if you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.